Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of August 22, 2013. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Throughout the month of August, we are interrupting our standard program format to bring you a special summer broadcast dedicated to the ongoing investigation by independent researchers into the attacks of September 11, 2001. During the week marking the 10th anniversary of the attacks, popularly known as 9-11, experts and researchers from around the world gathered at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada to present new and established evidence that questions the official narrative of that event and how it happened. The evidence was directed to a distinguished panel of experts over a four-day period. The speeches you are about to hear were originally recorded, mastered, and assembled in a 330-minute video called The Toronto Hearings on 9-11, Uncovering 10 Years of Deception. A DVD copy of the video is available for purchase at the website globalresearch.ca. Jonathan Cole is a professional engineer licensed in New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Florida with 28 years of experience. For more than 10 years, he has been the head of a mid-sized engineering firm with some 25 employees. And in addition to designing large-scale engineering projects, he has performed services as an expert in his field. He serves as director of the Board of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Cole's presentation focuses on the official 9-11 account and the scientific method. So how did the Twin Towers fall? How did the Twin Towers fall? It sounds like a very easy question, but in fact it's kind of a tough question because if you ask almost anybody on the street, if you had asked me four years ago, I would have said, oh, I don't, you know, the planes hit and and fires, and I think I heard some about explosions, but I, that didn't happen, and, and, uh, and then they just fell down. But I really didn't understand how those towers fell. And I think if you ask the average person on the street that same question, they won't really clearly understand the official story of how those towers fell. But knowing how those towers fell is critical because it's like if somebody was murdered, if they, if they were murdered, that's one thing, if they died of natural causes, it's another. We need to understand how those towers fall before we can go find out who did it. September 12th, my local hometown paper carried a story from the Englewood Post, uh, from the uh, sorry, the Washington Post, and in it, they already knew what happened. Pretty amazing. We have the two largest structural failures in history, and they already had it solved. They knew what the, they knew what caused it to come down. And we were told a different story. We were told the melting steel story. It says, in just under an hour, a raging fire from burning aviation gasoline softened or perhaps melted the steel. The experts already knew. The experts agreed that collapse of the two towers after the attack was almost inevitable, as if obviously they're going to fall down. And they give little diagrams in there as far as how they came down. Newsweek, extradition. The intense fire caused the tower to collapse. It melted the structural steel. What the firemen might not have realized is that gushing jet fuel was melting the steel. As if firemen don't take the as if firemen don't understand that steel frame structures, they routinely rush into them because they know they don't collapse. It's never happened before. But the Newsweek experts explained to us that the firemen probably didn't realize that. 
And indeed, there was ample evidence of melted steel. They were right about that. There's no question that there was melted steel. Here's some right here. And later you'll learn of other evidence of melted steel in very high temperatures. The problem came up that office fires and jet fuel cannot melt steel. It's a physical impossibility. They just cannot get hot enough to melt steel. And yet, we know there was steel that was melted. So that was a problem with our official story. NOVA put together uh, a very nice uh, documentary, documentary that I remember watching. And it's interesting in the documentaries that they tend to use animations rather than the actual collapse itself. They don't focus on the collapse. They use animations. As you watch this, notice that the, they will show the trusses collapsing. And they'll show those trusses breaking away. But they don't show the concrete floor on top of it. The concrete floor is invisible. So we have an invisible floor and these independent trusses breaking down. Also notice in this clip that we'll have entire parallel floors going down, but the, uh, they're basically floating floors in space. There's no, there's no corners on them, and they show this pancaking down. And so then we got into this pancake, what we call the trust failure theory for the official story. The heat of the fire would have softened both the floor trusses and the outer columns they were attached to. When the steel became weak, the trusses would have collapsed. And without the trusses to keep them rigidly in place, the columns would have bent outward and then failed. Once the trusses fail, the floors they were holding cascade down with a force too great to be withstood. The result is what's called a progressive collapse, as each floor pancakes down onto the one below. Now, what do we notice left standing? <laughs> they forgot to keep going, and there's something left standing. This is a strong core, 47 columns. They weren't just freestanding spaghettis. They were all interlaced and tied together. It was, in, this, in essence, a freestanding structure. Now, along with experiments, hypotheses that are given ought to match or ought to explain the phenomenon which we observe. So what did we observe? Did we observe those floating pancake floors coming down? Did we observe any pancakes at all at ground zero? This is a collapse in New Zealand from the earthquake, unfortunately. And what do we have here? What do we see? We see pancakes. We see large chunks of floors. This is a six or seven story building that came down. What do we see at ground zero? We had 110 floors. Did we see one complete floor? How about the roof? Did we see the roof? There was no load on top of the roof. We see nothing. We see cut steel all cut up steel, but no one acre size floor. So it, again, we need to observe and what do we use? We use our eyes to observe uh, what actually happened versus the, the animations. Now what about if we look at the actual collapse of the North Tower? Do we see entire floors coming down and hitting or do we see partial floors? What do we actually see? <laughs> This is just with a sound off, same speed. And I'm going to slow it down here. What do we see? We see them racing down one side. We see the corner still standing, coming down one side only. We don't see entire floors impacting. We see partial floors. What about this corner? Why is that still standing when the, this is rushed way ahead, dozens of floors ahead? Quite unusual. It doesn't match, it doesn't match what we were told. Uh, FEMA. Federal Emergency Management Agency and the American Society of Civil Engineers, they went into ground zero 
And they did a report, uh, and it came out in, uh, I believe, May of 2002. They started it for six months. And they proposed uh, a theory. It wasn't a pile-driving theory. They, they, propo they proposed, very similar to the PBS NOVA, the expanding floor trust failure theory. And that theory relies on there's heat in the buildings. Here's the core columns, and here's the perimeter columns. That heat expands the truss. It bows those trusses outward, and the trusses actually fail at the connection. So here's the columns. Here's the trusses coming in there. Those trusses break, okay? They break and they smash down, and then they, then they kind of pancake down the rest, of the, the rest of the way. That was their theory. Uh, it's in a published book uh, as far as that. That was what the official story was at that time. Well, then the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, came along, and they studied it from about September of 2002, I think all the way to about uh, fall of 2005. And they came out with a totally different story. They said that the, they, they disagreed with the FEMA initiation sequence, what we call the initiation of how it started. They said that those floor, trusses, those floor trusses did not expand and pull, and the connections did not break. They said just the opposite of FEMA. So our official story is changing a little bit. They basically said that we know, obviously, airplanes uh, hit, the, hit the towers. We all agree on that. Knocked off the insulation. <laughs> the jet fuel fire started. They said the fires weakened the floor truss, but the steel did not melt. The floor trusses sagged, but the connections did not fail. And though that sagging pulled in, it didn't push out those perimeter columns, and then once the upper section began to move downwards, global collapse ensued. So that's, that's their story. Uh, that is the latest official story. But even after all that time, money, and expertise, NIST said that they were unable to provide a full explanation of the total collapse. Theories or models must describe what we observe. Confirmation of those theories by experimentation or testing is the cornerstone of the scientific method. The strongest arguments prove nothing so long as the conclusions are not verified by experiment. So will global collapse ensue once started, and is collapse really inevitable? That's what they're telling us. Let's look at some real-world examples of other buildings that were intentionally weakened. In this, in this case, they were controlled demolitions. And they were weakened at the lower part of the structure, so it has even more mass to come down. Once they're weakened, will they automatically come down? Here's a, here's a uh, this is called a zip feed grain elevator. It was weakened. It didn't go down. It is not inevitable once you start something. Notice that it decelerates. It does not accelerate. It decelerates. Here's another one. We're blowing up the lower section. Will it keep going? It decelerates. It slows down. It doesn't accelerate. It is not inevitable, necessarily. There's another one. What do we observe? It is not inevitable. It's falling over, again, as Richard Gage would say, to its path of least resistance. So the statement that global collapse is inevitable, and all these experts are saying that, well, of course it's going to happen, is not backed up by our own observations. Okay, what about thermate? What about thermate? Can thermitic material cut or melt steel? First of all, what is thermate or thermite or thermitic material? I had never heard of thermite before three years ago, ever. Thermite is a mixture of iron oxide and aluminum. And when you add sulfur to it, they, they call it thermate. It's got that sulfur right in it. Uh, and so I decided to do a little research on thermite. 
and to find out what it could or could not do. Now, one of the things that was found in the dust is that there were small iron microspheres found in the dust. These are very small spheres, and they're round. And the reason they're round is the only way they could have gotten round is if they were molten at one time. And they're, they have a lot of iron in them. So it's another evidence that we had temperatures higher or high enough to melt steel or iron. Of course, and we also saw melting metal flowing from Tower 2. There it is pouring down there. So there's evidence of high temperatures. It's about seven minutes before the collapse of Tower 2. All of a sudden, it starts pouring out. What is this stuff? Independent scientists started to piece all this evidence together. They had those iron microspheres. Uh, they had that molten steel metal coming down. They're trying to come up with what can explain that because, again, this is all after a collapse initiation. It was never explained to us. What could explain that evidence? And Stephen Jones, uh, primarily, and others suggested that, you know, thermate, thermite with sulfur in it, would explain that eutectic steel. It would explain those iron microspheres, and it would explain that metal coming down there. So the media picked up on this and, and sort of the hubbub about this whole idea of thermitic material or thermite, and they respond and say that, no, no, it, it couldn't have been thermite because it, it's not possible for thermite to melt a steel column. National Geographic used some New Mexico tech. In New Mexico tech, they conducted an experiment that proved that thermite could not melt a steel column. And so if it, since it wouldn't melt a steel column, obviously those crazy truthers must be wrong. And this is what they told us, and they demonstrated by experiment. If thermite melts through this steel column, the theory of a thermite-controlled demolition may have some validity. While the truthers insist that more explosive super thermite could have been used in the tower demolitions, testing conventional thermite can illuminate this physical process and answer a simple question. Can thermite of any type burn through steel beams? Despite 175 pounds of thermite packed around the steel column, it remained undamaged. Mythbusters says, the events of 9-11 will not be allowed to be debated and discussed. But they attempted to melt through the roof of a car with half a ton of thermite and couldn't do it. And the debunking websites say, the thermite would have also needed to cut sideways. Not an easy feat for thermite. You see it's a powder which burns chaotically, maybe with some device, but no working device has been proven to me to work to cut a vertical column. So we are led to believe that thermitic material cannot melt steel, cut steel horizontally or vertically, and would take massive amounts to do any real damage. I started thinking about this, and, and again, I'm no chemist. I don't know much about thermite. I'm no explosive expert either. I don't know anything about explosives, really. But I, I started to look into this whole idea about thermite and thermate and all these different derivatives of thermite. And you go on YouTube and you find out what thermite can do. And I realized that, well, of course thermite can melt steel. They show it melting a railroad track and welding it and things like that. So I started learning more and more. So I started, I started to think that maybe, maybe I can do some sort of experiment. Let's see if they're right. Let's see if thermitic material can cut steel. They come out and they basically say it can't cut steel. Let's see if it can. So then I had to go about figuring out how I can do this, and I just started grabbing some things around the place. I found some steel beams, and I started kind of putting this thing together, 
and I, I put a little video out on the thing. Here's the initial setup of my experiment. Using the same beam from my Eutectic Steel video and another 12-inch beam, I proceeded to make... a double-angle welded connection, which I set up on some 8-inch concrete slabs. I could not obtain nanothermite, so I made small quantities of old-fashioned thermate, which is not considered an explosive, with ingredients that are legal and readily available. Thermate is difficult to ignite, and ordinary fuse is not hot enough. But a magnesium strip, which burns white-hot, will ignite the thermate given off heat and white smoke. In addition to giving off heat and white smoke, thermate produces lots of small spheres of iron. These iron spheres are a natural byproduct of thermate and not from any steel. Just like those iron spheres found all through the dust. So that's the first thing I learned is that thermate, those little round spheres, is a natural byproduct of that thermate. Okay. So then I thought, well, how am I going to melt steel how am I going to hold it against any steel? If it melts steel, it's going to melt whatever I press, press against it. So I started, I started thinking about fire brick. And I finally decided, well, maybe I will, maybe I will get some, uh, some roof tile we have in Florida uh, and cut it in half, put the loose thermite in there, wrap it around with some plastic wrap. And then I was thinking, well, how can I hold that against a steel beam? You can't bolt tile to a steel beam. So I, I decided to use some magnets and a, and a spring tooth and I thought, well, if I do this, I'll put five pounds on each side of this. Surely it'll melt that thing. It'll just take it right apart. Well, unfortunately in life, nature's not that way. Nature really doesn't care who you are. Uh, uh, nature's going to do what it's going to do. And, and it's going to prove what's true for that particular setup. So here's my first attempt. There's, the, uh, there's the, the clay tile. There's five pounds here and five pounds on the other side. There's some magnets and a spring tooth there. I went up to it and lit this thing. And I thought, well, here we go. I'm going to prove it. And I basically proved that it didn't do a, a thing, except for I think it singed my eyebrows. I did prove that. <laughs> so I learned that uh, get a little bit further away next time I do that because it will it gives off a pretty good pretty good heat there. So you do learn from everything uh, in life uh, with experiments. But um, as they say, at first you don't succeed. Um, I decided to keep on going. I had to scratch my head a while, and I thought, well, that's strange. It didn't, it didn't do anything. It didn't do what I thought it would do. So I tried again. Now, when you play this video, I'm going to be talking over it, but as I burn through this column, I want you to, if you can, if you can catch it in time, you're going to notice some molten metal pouring down as I go through this. It's fast, but if you slow it down, and you can check it out on the video I gave you in the presentation there, it will create molten metal, and that molten metal looks very similar to what's coming out of the South Tower. But the steel did not melt, meaning that perhaps a container could be made out of steel after all. Using an ordinary steel box tube, I had a slot milled along one edge. Welding the bottom and using clamps on the top to hold the powdered thermate in, I bolted it to a steel beam vertically. I called this device my thermitic box cutter. With only one and a half pounds of thermate, or less than one one-hundredth of what the National Geographic experts use for their experiments, Not only was I able to melt steel, but it also sliced a vertical cut. So I made a slightly larger thermitic box cutter and used two 3-8 bolts drilled and tapped on one side of the connection. Here's the molten steel coming.
It only took a slight twist to break it completely off. I noticed as the thermate burned, it tended to lose its cutting power, perhaps because it could expand into the area where the box cutter previously burned. So I built a piston-driven box cutter using a compressed car hatch piston. I added sheets of tungsten to minimize the burnout and allow the piston to slide better. I then bolted my contraption to the flange of the column and ignited the white-hot magnesium. It appears that not only can thermate melt steel, but it can also cut vertical columns. So that was my, my second test. And that one worked a little bit better. Now, in all those 10,000 pages of the NIST report, they do talk about pressure pulses and dust puffs prior to the collapse of those twin towers. A lot of little pulses coming out and a lot of dust puffs coming out, which I think is a, a very nice way to say that perhaps there were some pre-weakening explosions. But they called them pressure pulses and dust puffs. And so I thought, well, let's see what else we can do with this stuff. I wonder if we can get, I wonder if we can emulate those pressure pulses and dust puffs through experimentation. Rather than using a mechanical piston to maintain volume, I segmented my box cutter with steel plates, hoping to get a more uniform burn, but got some unexpected results. Can thermate make pressure pulses and or dust puffs? I guess it can. But why waste all that thermate and energy cutting the columns? Why not attack the weakest areas instead? Can thermate cut bolts? I guess it can. But what if just the head of the bolt is exposed rather than the nut and the threads? Can thermite be configured to cut just the bolt head? I guess it can. And without any evidence on the other side. I don't think that something like my piston-driven box cutter was bolted to the office walls or trash bags full of thermite used. It's more likely that any pre-weakening thermitic material were hidden inside the perimeter box columns. I had a replica of a segment of the WTC box columns made up. And like the Trade Center iron workers, I bolted the segments together. It made two sets of my two bolt blasters, placing them in the access hole. Let's listen to another eyewitness. Like, it sounded like gunfire. You know, bang, 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 bang. And then, and then all of a sudden, three big explosions. Is it even possible that thermite could do this? I guess it is. I made a four-sided internal box cutter that was split into two pieces so they could be inserted inside the column. Let's see what happens. I think my box cutter blew about 50 feet up, consuming valuable energy and trimming my trees in the process. <laughs> Nevertheless, the inside of the column was cut about three-quarters of the way through. Were thermitic devices or maybe explosive nanothermite sprayed inside those box columns? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure. I'm just saying what thermite can and cannot do. So, again, remember the National Geographic experts and, and, the, and all the experts out there asked us this question. Can thermite of any type burn through steel beams?
Using your power of observation, what do you think? <laughs> do you think it can, even though the experts said it could not be done? And again, I am certainly no, no, no explosive expert whatsoever. I, I just sort of fumbled through my way on this thing. I didn't know, I had no clue what I was doing, really. Unfortunately, there's another little quote out there. In these days, when a man who says a thing cannot be done is quite apt to be interrupted by some idiot doing it. <laughs> because we know that regardless of how beautiful their theory may appear, if it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. It's wrong. So all the arguments from authority, as Carl Sagan once said, all arguments from authority are unacceptable unless they can be backed up, I'll add, by uh, uh, experiment. Cynthia McKinney served as a Democratic member of the U.S. Congress from 1992 to 2002 and again from 2004 to 2006. She ran as a U.S. presidential candidate on the Green Party ticket in 2008. McKinney has been active with the civil rights and anti-war movements. As well, she has been the only U.S. elected representative to openly question the role of the U.S. government in deliberately fostering the September 11th attacks. In her talk, McKinney contextualizes 9-11 from a Washington insider's perspective. What happened on September 11th from the standpoint of somebody who was in Washington, D.C. Probably the thing that struck me the most was after September 11th, there were slick brochures, magazines with photographs that appeared on the newsstands immediately after September 11th. And I asked myself, how did they get those pictures? Kind of like all of those red, black, and green flags that showed up overnight in Libya. We also, as um, members of Congress, were given talking points, and you all have seen my um, interviews that I've done talking about these talking points. The talking points basically said that the United States was hit because we're free. But now I think I have given you a little bit of my background. And what I understood clearly was that we ain't free. And so therefore, that talking point was created for another population. The reason that I didn't believe the talking points and the severe orchestration that took place and sort of a induction into groupthink that uh, 535 members of Congress were supposed to um, buy into was because, one, I understood as an African-American what it means to be targeted by the United States government through the documentation provided to all of the people of the world now because it's on the Internet and the COINTELPRO papers, the counterintelligence program. I also was very well aware 
of what the United States government would do to communities of color because there was no such thing as crack cocaine until the United States decided that they wanted to impact policy in Latin America and they needed to finance it. Operation Northwoods, I called in uh, James Bamford to explain to me Operation Northwoods. And there in my government's own writing is a most diabolical plan, eerily similar to what happened on September 11th. You're listening to a special summer broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on participating community radio stations across Canada. We are also heard on the Progressive Radio Network and our podcast at globalresearch.ca. Niels Herrett is Associate Professor of Chemistry from the University of Copenhagen and has authored more than 60 articles in the most prominent scientific journals in his field. The peer-reviewed study, Active Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the World Trade Center Catastrophe, which he co-authored, has generated significant interest around the world. Professor Herrett spoke to the Toronto hearings on the subject of thermitic material in the World Trade Center dust. Today, in my presentation, we will zoom in on the dust, which uh, we have all seen several times in the presentations preceding this one. Uh, and oops, and uh, in such huge quantities in what was called pyroclastic clouds. And the pyroclastic cloud is a dust cloud which is hot. There was plenty of dust. And it influenced so many people in New York City, one of them being a woman who was living on the corner of Cedar Street and Liberty Street. It's this corner here. Her name was Janet McKinley, and she was allowed to come back to her apartment about a week later, and this is what it looked like. There was a thick layer of dust all over, and she had a cleaning job to do. She kept some of it, for the purpose, eventually, of making it into a piece of art, because she also had an artistic mind, we put this, this dust into a plastic bag and apply a magnet onto it. I have taken, actually, a small sample out of this bag, put it into a smaller bag here, and I also brought a little magnet here. You should take the bag horizontally, or you can also put it vertically, and then apply the magnet to the dust, and you'll see something coming along. Play a little with it. The challenge for you is to isolate a black uh, line of particles following the curvature of the magnet. The, ma the magnetic field is strongest at the edges. So try to pull out some magnetic material from the bulk and eventually isolate what probably will be a black, a black line of small particles. And this is some of the stuff you can isolate from the dust by means of the magnet. <clears throat> it was first presented to the world in 
2007, on December 15th in Boston, by Stephen E. Jones. Following this uh, publication of Stephen E. Jones, I was asked to join this team of scientists investigating these red great chips, and the work eventually ended up in a publication on April 3rd of 2009. The paper is based on four samples. Janet McKinley's sample is on the corner of the World Trade Center Square Plaza, and the other one here is from the Brooklyn Bridge. Sample number three and sample number four is a little north of that. In all four samples, we found these red-gray chips. These are the four samples, A, B, C, and D. When you heat these chips up, they react. What we're aiming at now is, you're already, you should know, we are talking about nanothermite. We're talking about the thermite reaction. You have seen this reaction scheme many times already. You've seen... And it was invented, it's an old thermite, it's a very old thing. It was invented by Hans Goldschmidt, a German chemist, in 1893. It was patented in 1898 and applied for the first time in 1899 for welding of tram rails in Essen in, in, in Germany. Because in the thermite reaction, as you have already heard now many times, you form elemental iron <clears throat> at a very high temperature, so it's very useful for welding. This picture also was shown by Kevin Ryan, and these are the various uh, residues. These are chips which all have been into the different the DSC machine. We are taking them out, and we are observing these reaction products, the, uh, the, the metal spheres. And these pictures, also shown by Kevin Ryan, is what the chips look like when Kevin is preparing the nanothermite in his backyard, and we see the same red chips here. So, uh, if what else? So we believe that we have found what we call nanothermite. Let me repeat: you have a plastic matrix, and in it you have very finely dispersed aluminum and iron oxide. And that's it. An explosive must act by means of force. It is a chemical reaction where a gas is evolved and you knock things over like that with a pressure, with a force. And it is, has, in order to do that, it has to be very fast. The characteristic of explosives are not that they are energetic, but they are fast. They deliver their energy uh, in forms of, of ga gas pressure very, very fast. But thermite and thermate acts by means of heat, contrast to ex explosives, which acts by means of pressure. And relative, even though we saw Jonathan Cole demonstrating th these wonderful experiments in his neighbor's, neighbor's garden, he, um, we, they are still slow on the time scale of explosives. Explosives are very, very fast. Some of the explosives... Actually, the combustion zones move more than 20 times the speed of sound. This is TNT, a very common explosive, trinitrotoluene. And this is RDX. It's called cyclotrimethylene trinitramine. And the reason why 
explosives are so fast is that the electrons only have a very short range to go. The, both parts of the reaction are actually in the same molecule. So in TNT, the electrons only have to move from here and out to the nitrogen group. This is a distance less than one-tenth or one-billionth of a meter. While in, in say, in gunpowder, which is a mixture of powders, the electrons have to move from one particle to the other. Fireworks, rocket fuels, and old-time thermites. In nanotechnology, you, you start with composite materials, but you make the particles smaller and smaller and smaller. And this is, this is what happens to a thermite reaction. As you make the particles smaller, it... It, the time of reaction gets shorter and shorter, and then, of course, you deliver the energy to in a much shorter time, meaning that the effect gets much higher, and eventually you approach the delivery rate to that of molecular materials. The advantage of thermitic materials is that the energy content per volume is much, much higher than the unconventional materials, meaning that you can pack much more energy into a smaller volume than you can do with dynamite or TNT or RDX. Incendiaries, which act by means of heat, they must by necessity be thermitic. And this is what we have served, molten iron in the rubble, molten iron coming out of the south tower, and these iron spheres being formed unambitiously indicating that thermite must have been there one way or the other. Now I will show you a video which David Chandler did not show. And um, I must admit that up until this point, I, um, I did not, as I said, indulge in hypothetical blast scenario. I wouldn't I wouldn't speculate where the red-grade chips fit into any blast scenario. But upon watching this one, I changed my mind. This is the destruction of the South Tower of the World Trade Center, viewed from a helicopter to the south. This particular video clip is rich in details that call the official story into question. Notice the numerous explosions on the west side of the building above the impact point. As the top 30 floor section falls, it tips to the east. It starts off intact, but then it disintegrates in midair. Gravity alone could not cause the top section to disintegrate. When an object is in free fall, there are no internal stresses. It should have hit the ground in one piece, but it didn't. Some of the debris is clearly being accelerated by forces other than gravity. These effects can be caused by late firing explosives, which can produce a white smoke trail. White smoke, consisting of aluminum oxide, is a byproduct of the thermite reaction. While producing this video, I ran across one rocket projectile I had not seen commented on before. This one stopped midair and changed directions. Even taking perspective effects into account, this projectile lost one component of momentum and gained another. That requires an impulse. Note that the rocket trail does not point back to the building, but the point where the impulse occurred. Let's take it from the top. There's a lot going on. 
watch for the smoking guns. This is outrageous. And when I saw this first time, I said, that could be our red grade ships. Look at these trails. Uh, and now, up until this point, I thought all the white dust coming out of the towers was crushed wallboard. There was plenty of wallboard, in, and it's white. But this is not what wallboard would look like if you crush it and throw it out the window. These are rocket trails. And, and this Byproduct of a thermite reaction. While producing this video, I ran across one rocket projectile I had not seen commented on before. This one stopped midair. This is crazy. It goes out like this, and then it changed direction 90 degrees. And it still tracks a, a white smoke trail asteroids. What, what are we looking at here? This is rocket fuel. The number of responders has been discussed. What I've seen in a medical journal and the estimate is between 60 to 70,000 of people were exposed to the dust for an extended period of time. And last year there were published a paper in Experimental Health, Health Perspectives by a group of, of, of doctors from the Mount Sinai Medical School in Manhattan. And they looked into the lung tissue of World Trade Center responders, and uh, we should see what they found. The picture to the left here is from lung tissue, and they found some thread-like tubular structures in four out of seven patients which were ill, uh, in numbers ranging from 11,000 to 230,000 per gram wet tissue. This is the same material which they found also in the World Trade Center dust, which is moving around here somewhere. Carbon nanotubes, what are they? Well, they are tubes made of carbon. But they are very, very, very small. They are very, very strong. They are hundreds of times stronger than spiderweb. Formation of carbon nanotubes requires three conditions must be fulfilled. You must have very high temperatures, and you must have a source of carbon atoms, which means an organic chemical present, and you must have a metal catalyst among which iron happens to be one of the best besides cobalt. And so this triggered the thought in some of us, well, this means that ignition of the nanothermite should be ideal circumstances for formation of nanotubes. So this is this is the residue. Kevin, he took. You remember he came in. He took he took the beaker and you show and you saw down into it. Yes. He left it cooling a little bit. He put it into a letter and sent it to me. It is here. And what I did then is to take a little sample out of this, pouring a few milliliters of alcohol ethanol onto it, making a slush. In a, in a mortar, actually, letting the particles, all the metal particles, all the heavy particles precipitate. And then you take a little drop of, um, of, of the supernatant liquid. You put them onto a copper grid, which the panelists can also see here. They're very, very small. And you let the ethanol evaporate. You put them into a transmission electron microscope, and this is what you see.
This is the perfect dimensions of carbon energy. This is carbon energy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't come, obviously, I wouldn't come up with this if I didn't believe what I was saying. This is carbon nanotubes. This is a picture from the patients in Mount Sinai study. This is what we find as a product of the nanothermite reaction. And please remember that none of the control group showed this feature. So if you ask, couldn't the nanotubes come from somewhere else? It's true. It is formed combustion of diesel and, uh, and uh, in much, much smaller amount and in oxygen start fires. But the control group have been living a normal life except that they actually caught uh, asbestos fibers. And they, none of them showed, showed um, carbon nanotubes in their lungs. The goddess of justice, in my language, we call her Justitia. And she is usually depicted, she's blindfolded, she carries a sword and a balance. And the point, the implication of this, obviously, is that her judgment should not be biased by her own opinions. It should only be based on whatever the hard evidence presented in the case. So you could say that, that justice is blind and science is blind, but we are not dumb. Thank you. Peter Dale Scott held varying positions in the Canadian diplomatic service before establishing a career as an English professor at the University of California, Berkeley, a position from which he retired in 1994. He's a poet of high stature and a public intellectual known for his anti-war stances and his criticism of U.S. foreign policy. He's authored numerous books which provide a conceptual framework for the deep structures underlying such activities as political assassinations, state-sponsored drug trafficking, and state terrorism. The topic of Professor Scott's talk at the Toronto hearings was the history of deep state activities with special reference to 9-11. There's now a consensus, even from the staff of the 9-11 Commission, that there's something very wrong with the government's story. 9-11 uh, Commission team leader John Farmer has said there was either unprecedented administrative incompetence or organized mendacity on the part of key figures in Washington. Now, the mendacity has come from figures including President Bush, Vice President Cheney, NORAD General Richard Myers, and CIA Director Tenet. They include also President Clinton's National Security Advisor, Samuel Berger, who prior to testifying on these matters, went to the National Archives and removed and presumably destroyed key relevant documents. Finally, in his book, John Farmer comes down to endorsing both of his alternatives. Farmer's first alternative of unprecedented administrative incompetence is in effect the explanation offered by the 9-11 report to deal with A, striking anomalies on 9-11 itself, and B, the preceding 20 months during which important information was withheld from the FBI by key personnel in the CIA's bin Laden unit, the so-called Alex station. 
But thanks to the groundbreaking new book by Kevin Fenton, Disconnecting the Dots, we can no longer attribute the anomalous CIA behavior before 9-11 to, quote, systemic problems or what Anthony Summers rashly calls bureaucratic confusion. Fenton demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that there was a systematic CIA pattern of withholding important information from the FBI, even when the FBI would normally be entitled to it. The pattern begins with intelligence obtained from surveillance of an important Al-Qaeda summit meeting of January 2000 in Malaysia, perhaps the only such Al-Qaeda summit before 9-11. The meeting drew instant and high-level U.S. attention because of indirect links to a support element, a key telephone in Yemen used by al-Qaeda, suspected of a role in the 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies. As Fenton notes, the CIA realized that the summit was so important that information about it was briefed to CIA and FBI leaders, Louis Free and Dale Watson, National Security Advisor Sandy Berger, and other top officials. This is probably what Berger was trying to cover up when he went to the archives. Yet inside Alex Station, Tom Wilshire and his CIA subordinate, known only as Michelle, blocked the effort of an FBI agent detailed there, Doug Miller, to notify the FBI that one of the participants, Khalid al-Mishdar, had a U.S. visa in his passport. Alex Station also failed to watch list the participants in the meeting, as was called for by the CIA's guidelines. This was just the beginning of a systematic, sometimes lying pattern, where NSA and CIA information about Al-Nista and his traveling companion, Nawaf al-Hazmi, was systematically withheld from the FBI, lied about, or manipulated or distorted in such a way as to inhibit an FBI investigation of the two Saudis and their associates. This pattern is a major component of the 9-11 story because the behavior of these two eventual hijackers was so unprofessional that without this CIA protection from the Alex Station Group, they would almost certainly have been detected and detained or deported long before they boarded Flight 77 in Washington. And so, I may add, would have been the other hijackers with whom they had been in contact. Initially, I believe Al-Mishdar and Al-Hazmi were protected because they had been sent to America by Saudi GID intelligence service, admitted under the terms of the liaison agreement between the GID and the CIA. Prince Turki al-Faisal, former head of the GID, has said that he shared his al-Qaeda information with the CIA and that in 1997 the Saudis, quote, established a joint intelligence committee with the United States to share information on information in, on terrorism in general and on al-Qaeda in particular. Even in the very best of circumstances, decisions have to be made whether to allow an informant's crime to go forward 
or to thwart it and risk terminating the usefulness of the informant. In such moments, agencies are all too likely to make the choice that is not in the public interest. A very relevant example is the first World Trade Center bombing of 1993. Relevant because Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of 9-11, was one of the 1993 plotters as well. The FBI had an informant, Ahmad Salem, among the plotters. And Salem later claimed, with supporting evidence from actual tapes of his FBI debriefings, that the FBI deliberately chose not to shut down the plot. Here is Ralph Blumenthal's careful account in the New York Times of this precursor to the mystery of 9-11. Law enforcement officials, the FBI, were told that terrorists were building a bomb that was eventually used to blow up the World Trade Center, and they planned to thwart the plotters by secretly substituting harmless powder for the explosives, comma, an informer said after the blast, that is, Ahmad Salim. The informer was to have helped the plotters build the bomb and supply the fake powder, but the plan was called off by an FBI supervisor who had other ideas about how the informer Ahmad Salem should be used. What makes the 1993 bombing even more relevant is that Salem, according to many sources, was an agent of the Egyptian intelligence service sent to America under liaison to spy on the actions of the Egyptian blind sheikh Omar Akhtel Rahman. It is clear from both investigative and prosecutorial behavior that a number of different U.S. agencies did not want to disturb Rahman's activities. Even after Rahman himself was finally indicted in the 1995 conspiracy case to blow up New York landmarks, the U.S. government continued to protect Ali Mohammed a key figure, perhaps the key figure in that conspiracy. Then in 1994, when Ali Mohammed was detained in Vancouver by the Canadian RCMP, the, the FBI intervened to arrange for Ali Mohammed's release. This freed Mohammed to proceed to Kenya, where he became the lead organizer of the 1998 embassy bombing in Nairobi. Following this atrocity, Ali Mohammed was finally belatedly detained by the Americans, but still not indicted. He was apparently still a free man when he readily confessed to his FBI handler, Jack Clunan, that he knew at least three of the 9-11 hijackers and had helped instruct them in how to hijack airplanes we have to conclude that there is something profoundly dysfunctional going on here and has been going on since before 9-11, indeed under both political parties. We know from many accounts of the Bush administration that there was also another powerful pro-war consensus within it centered on Cheney, Rumsfeld, and the so-called cabal of PNAC, the project for the new American century, 
that before Bush's election had been lobbying vigorously and publicly for military action against Iraq. We know also that Rumsfeld's immediate response to 9-11 was to propose an attack on Iraq and that planning for such an attack was indeed instituted on September the 17th. In the Bush administration, Stephen Cambone, who earlier had collaborated with Rumsfeld and Cheney in signing the PNAC statement, Rebuilding America's Defenses, became one of the most active promoters of using SOCOM special forces to operate covertly against al-Qaeda, not just in Afghanistan, but, quote, anywhere in the world, which is, in effect, what we have now under, uh, under our current president. In a sense, 9-11 was unprecedented, the greatest mass murder ever committed in one day on U.S. soil. In another sense, it represented a kind of event with which we have become only too familiar since the Kennedy assassination. I've called these events deep events, events with a predictable accompanying pattern of official cover-ups backed up by amazing media malfunction and dishonest best-selling books. Some of these deep events, like the Kennedy assassination and 9-11, should be considered structural deep events because of their permanent impact on history. It is striking that these two structural events, the Kennedy assassination and 9-11, should both have been swiftly followed by America's engagement in ill-considered wars. The reverse is also true. All of America's significant wars since Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, twice, once covertly and now overtly, and Iraq, have all been preceded by structural deep events. America, I argue in my latest book, has become dominated by a war machine in Washington, a war machine that has been building incrementally since Eisenhower warned us about it in 1961. I thank you very much. On today's program, we heard presentations from engineer Jonathan Cole, former U.S. Congresswoman and presidential candidate Cynthia McKinney, chemistry professor Niels Herrett, and emeritus English professor and author Peter Dale Scott. Today's presentations are all from a 330-minute DVD entitled The Toronto Hearings on 9-11, Uncovering 10 Years of Deception. You may order your own copy by visiting the website globalresearch.ca. The Toronto Hearings on 9-11, Uncovering 10 Years of Deception, was presented by the International Centre for 9-11 Studies in collaboration with Press for Truth. It was produced by Stephen Davies, Dan Dix, and Brian Law. Music was by Dan Dix. The executive producer was James Gourley. The producer and host of the Global Research News Hour is me, Michael Welch. Thank you for joining us this week.